Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hi, fellow listeners, and welcome to episode 11 of Can I Pick Your Brain? Today, I have with me a very special guest, David Gancher of Marine Group the nation's second largest contingency search firm, which is one of the 25 largest healthcare search firms in America, serving over 500 hospitals and medical centers, and they have never advertised. David is also the founder of Shepherd Search Group, a conglomerate of eight different recruitment brands across three continents, serving more than 15 industries with clients in over 20 countries. David, welcome to the show, and thanks for letting me pick your brain. Thank you, Daniel. It's an introduction that would make a mother proud. (laughs) I hope your mother listens to it then. (laughs) Now, I'm sure our listeners want to know how you managed to build such a successful company with no advertising. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your background? What was it like growing up? Growing up was uh, was an entrepreneurial dream, I suppose. Uh, It was uh, I was imbued with business and ethical values from the time that I was a little child. And so I had my first business at the age of nine, and I came from a home with a very strong work ethic. And so, did you just say? Sorry, did you just say nine? Yeah, the age of nine. What, what did you? What business did you run at the age of nine? At the age of nine, I had a pet service, and I had twelve neighborhood boys and girls working for me, and we provided dog walking cat-sitting, grooming services, a bird-sitting, anything to do with home pets. And uh, the uh, the team and I uh, worked uh, five days a week, and we were the largest uh, pet care agency in the city of Boston. You are kidding me. At nine years old. Cash business. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and it went downhill from there. That's right. That's, right. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I'd lo- I mean, you became the number two salesperson in the nation uh, working for a multi-billion dollar company serving the commercial printing market. That's correct. My background is in commercial printing. Uh, and actually, today, we are the largest contingency healthcare search firm in the nation and uh, one of the top 10 retained firms in the nation. Okay, so how did you like walk us through from nine years old? How do you accomplish becoming the the, the top salesperson of the nation? Well, we had uh, my background is that uh, I had a number of businesses when I was a teenager, kind of one business after another, and then uh, when I graduated from Carnegie Mellon in uh, uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, I went to work for uh, Robert Maxwell. You probably remember Robert Maxwell. I, I pushed him off the back of a boat one night. You remember that story? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Well, I Sorry. wasn't the one that pushed him, but somebody pushed him. Oh, okay. I thought you pushed him off the boat. <laughs> we don't know who. Somebody pushed him. But okay. uh, went to work for Maxwell, which was acquired by a company called Kebacor. Kebacor went on to become the largest printing company in the world. It was more recently acquired by Quad Graphics, but at the time it was about a $550 million organization. And wow. During the years that I was there, we grew from 550 million to about 7 billion and became known as Kebacore World. And I ran the uh, Eastern Seaboard Sales Division for them. 
Wow. So um, you, you're basically saying that you were part of the reason why they went from $500 million to $7 billion? I don't think so, but I had, I had some good luck, and I got to put it on my resume. I, I might have had a little <laughs> bit to, to do with it. I, I was in sales for them for many years and then went into uh, management uh, and worked ex- primarily in their catalog division. But my career was focused uh, once I moved into management on recruiting great salespeople, retaining great salespeople, sales and marketing and customer service. That's where I spent my background. So I left there uh, in, in 1999. Uh, I joined a much smaller company, about $100 million in sales, which was a regional printer uh, in the Northeast and uh, worked there as the executive vice president for about two years until we were caught up in a, in a merger as our largest client at the time. Uh, Warner Lambert was acquired by Pfizer. After that happened, uh, a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, you've spent most of your career re- hiring and recruiting and retaining great people. I think mm-hmm. you'd be great as a headhunter. And like mm-hmm. most people in the executive search business, we fall into it. It's not something you grow up saying, hey, I want to be a headhunter. So, uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I thought headhunting was before I actually found out what it really was, right? Tell us. Well, I thought it was you had to go and chop people's heads off and, uh, and you know, collect them. Yeah, well, if you look at my uh, LinkedIn profile, I think it says that we're headquartered out of uh, Bora Bora or something like that. <laughs> Before I get into the, uh, this, the type of skills that a person needs to become successful in sales and, and also in terms of managing staff, I want to go back to your teenage years. You mentioned about the couple of businesses that you ran. Can we, can we talk about that? Sure. So what was the first business? I mean, you told us the first business was at nine. Let's go back there. Why didn't, it, why didn't you build that up and, and build it into a global uh, pet-sitting company? I mean, what, what happened? Why did it stop? What happened at the end? Well, we built it into a full-fledged service agency. And essentially, it was, if you think about the time, this is, of course, the late 70s going into the early 80s. And mm. if you think about the economy at that time and you think about what was going on, this was really a period where... People were saying, hey, you know, more and more uh, women getting into the workforce uh, and companies uh, empowering uh, leadership amongst both genders. And so what we were seeing were living in downtown Boston, and I suppose in any major city, is we were seeing two parents that were working, a rise in the divorce rate, and as a result, a lot of kids that were left having dinner by themselves at night. And Mm. what that meant is people didn't have time to do the basics. They didn't have time to pick up their dry cleaning. They didn't have time to clean their house. They didn't have time to take care of their pets. And they might not own cars if they were in the inner city. So as more and more families were looking at scenarios where they had two incomes and both parents were out of the house, businesses said, let's cater this. So we started a company called uh, O'David, the O'David Service Agency. (laughs) That goes well in Boston because in Boston, everybody's Irish. Oh, really? So uh, we spelled it O-H-O, David, but everybody thought it was O apostrophe, David. <laughs> As you can imagine, uh, we, um, we grew the business from there. So we catered to these types of services. We had a cleaning division. We had a limousine division. Uh, we had- uh, hold on. Let, let me just get this straight. You were nine years old. You've got a cleaning division. No, this no, this was later. This was uh, oh. this, this grew out of the pet service uh, probably around the time I was 13. Okay, so you're 13 years old, and this is what you're doing. Right. What, what were your parents' involvement? Uh, they were getting a divorce. So you were doing this while your parents were getting divorced? Yeah, actually, my mother came to work for me because she needed a job. So uh, she actually oh became a member of our cleaning staff. 
<laughs> you you hired your mother as a cleaner <laughs> for your company. She was oh. the best cleaner we had. Oh, this is hilarious. Oh, David, I'm loving this. This is incredible. <laughs> uh, tell me more. So what, what, what was next? So that was it. Essentially, we became a full-fledged service agency in downtown Boston, catering only to high-rises. So if you lived in a house, we weren't prepared to help you. But uh, we wrote these catchy little poems about the services that we would provide, and we would simply take these brochures. You started off our discussion by talking about uh, not spending money on, on advertising. I do not believe in advertising. So we simply took these flyers that we printed up on copy machines, stuck them under doors, and the phone started ringing. Wow. Hustling. I love it. And I mean, what drove you? Because you're 13 years old. I mean, okay, you're nine years old. It was cute. But now you're 13 years old. Your kids are playing. I don't know what they're playing in the 1970s. But I mean, for me, I was sitting on a games console most of the time or watching TV. What, what, what drives a 13-year-old to want to wanna run a business and make money? You know, I think it was Texas Instruments at that point, wasn't it, at that point in time? I'm younger than you, so I don't know what Texas Instruments yeah, right, is. You are, you are a little younger. That's true. But I'm still more <laughs> handsome, so we're, we're even. <laughs> well, ask my wife afterwards. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I think drives that is, is two things. Uh, fear. Uh, fear <laughs> drives it. Uh, and hunger. Uh, and when your parents are going through divorce, you do things to protect yourself. And so I saw this as a mode of protection for my family. When you say protection for your family, is this including your father or is it just your mother? I, I, don't know that it, I don't know that it's relevant. I don't know that it matters. I think that when you, you know, my sisters were grown, they were out of the house. And I think that when you are a young man and your parents are getting a divorce and, and there are financial difficulties all of a sudden thrust upon the mother, thrust upon the father, and, and it may not be for any tangible reason. It may simply be because of, uh, because individuals are fighting about where money ought to go, but I see it as a as a reaction to that. And in my own case, this was a way to ensure that there was a safety net. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, there are a lot of teenagers that would crawl under, uh, you know, a, a rock and uh, and basically get high and run away from it all. And instead, you actually, you know, took the bull by the horns and did something about it. And that's very impressive. Thank you. What other businesses did you start after that? Well, there were a number of them. Uh, I started the Flower Toad, but I don't want to bore you with these details. But essentially, okay. when I was in uh, college, uh, we distributed uh, flowers all over the uh, to all of the college campuses for a major holidays. So Christmas, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, you name it. Anytime there was a holiday, I, I, I figured out one day. I, w I mentioned I was at Carnegie Mellon, and I was mm -hmm. just staring at the phone one day with nothing to do. I was I think I was delivering pizzas for Domino's, <laughs> and I realized. That my phone number, I'd never forget this, I realized that my phone number was 268, which was the beginning of every phone number on the Carnegie Mellon campus. If you look at that, okay. that's CMU, Carnegie Mellon University. So okay. my phone number was 268-8623. That was my phone number. And so as I looked at that, it occurred to me that it's spelled CMU Toad. So okay. I made up this picture of a toad at Carnegie Mellon University, <laughs> and I became the flower toad. And we would deliver flowers uh, all over, as I say, all over the college campuses across uh, across Pittsburgh. And that became uh, not a huge business, but that became a nice business during uh, the three years that I was in the school there. Why flowers, though? 
That's a great question. It was something easy. It was something I didn't have to do all week long. You know, when you're studying and you're in school, it's hard to commit to a seven day a week or five day a week business. So this was something that I could just work on a few times a year uh, and it sold really well, particularly because as you know, uh, Daniel, and I know that you're a, a you know, you're, you're a man of the world and when you're in college, you know, you've got to, uh, you're going out on a lot of dates. You're meeting a lot of people. Uh, what's <laughs> better than flowers and candy? Absolutely. <laughs> so you're obviously very good uh, at sales. What skills does someone need to acquire in order to become so successful in sales, would you say? That's a great question. Uh, in my mind, I think uh, perseverance, mm-hmm. honesty, and a little charm doesn't hurt. <laughs> I understand the perseverance. What do you mean by by charm and the honesty, obviously, but what do you mean by charm? I think you've got to have a sense of humor. You've got to be able to talk with all different types of people, whether it's a CEO of an organization or, shall we say, the toll booth collector on Highway 95, uh, (laughs) you know, or, or at the Verrazano Bridge or what have you. So for me... Being able to talk to people uh, at all levels, which is how I was schooled, uh, was very, very helpful. And the honest factor comes in because people want to work with people that they can trust. If you lose (laughs) your client's trust, then you're finished. So that has always been a key milestone of any business that I've had. And the first thing that I say to people when they walk in the door is, we're going to create the very best customer experience there is, but we need to do it honestly and ethically. And if you lose that trust, you will put us out of business. Wow. And I mean, do you think that you're born with the skills of being a great salesperson or do you think you can learn them? I think they can be learned, but I would suggest that I would suggest that some of these skills are simply innate. But yes, I do believe they can be learned. Okay. And you also managed over 60 people. Is that right? 60 people at one point? You know, they say that to be successful, you need to build a great team. What do you think it takes to build a great team? And and how do you manage them so that everyone is working to their best performance level? Well, you heard it said, Daniel, to be successful in business, you really don't need to do much but hire great people and keep them around you. So I have hired people that are smarter than I am. I'm not being humble. I have hired people that are passionate about what they do. I have hired people that are loyal and dedicated and care about our customers. And so I've been successful. And I like to say, I'm not the boss, I'm the coach. I'm here for the, for the ride. And I do think that I may work harder than some. I may be more passionate than some. I definitely don't think that I'm more intelligent. And uh, I don't think that you need to be super intelligent to be successful in business. How do you find such great people? Because a lot of a lot of people that I speak to in business, one of the hardest things is finding good people, including including myself. When I started my company, I had one receptionist who became suicidal and she needed to she quit. I, I had I had one another receptionist who I ended up making her cry because I was a little bit too harsh with her. And I, you know, I found managing people so difficult. I mean, how do you find good people and how do you keep them? How do you keep them happy? Well, managing people is extremely difficult. And you have touched on exactly what I do today and I've done for the last 15 years. And that is today I own one of the nation's largest and fastest growing executive search firms. And Shepherd Search Group today has offices in 10 cities. We cater to 12 different industries. And we have a cadre of talent scouts and individuals across the country that look for the very best talent so that they can help corporations grow. Essentially, I like to say this. We are the talent scouts for the middle class. We're all familiar with the concept. Everybody knows Tiger Woods' agent, right? 
Mm-hmm. Everybody knows his agent. He was one of the most famous agents. And we're used to the concept of Hollywood stars having agents and sports players having agents. However, I thought what we ought to do is we ought to really take this same concept and apply it to the middle class. You've got a great doctor in life to make sure your physical shape is okay. You've got a great lawyer in life to make sure you're protected legally. And, you know, if you're smart, you probably protect yourself spiritually as well with a a, a priest or a reverend or a rabbi or an imam or what have you. So we apply the same thing here. We say, look, executive search has never been a business that has been able to successfully cater to the individual and help them with their career aspirations. And at the same time, the corporation helped them hire great talent. They always had to take care of one side or the other because they felt there was a conflict of interest. So if we could solve that gap, which we think we've done, and we can be essentially a talent scout to the middle class, then you hit the nail on the head. That's what we do. We look for great people because companies, I think the biggest struggle, the largest thing holding back the Fortune 500 today and holding back even the mom-and-pop corporations, not just domestically, but globally, is the war for talent. So that's where we come in. We look and work with and represent the A players. We are not looking for people who have their resume on job boards. We are not looking for active candidates. We're looking for the passive individuals, those that say, I'm not looking for a job, but I'm great at what I do. And we say, well, can I pick your brain? Can I talk to you about an opportunity that, quite frankly, without us, you may never hear about? Hmm. You come across as a really like, genuinely nice guy. How do you strike a balance between being a nice guy whilst being able to demand respect or authority from your staff? I don't know if I'm a nice guy. You know, I'll, I'll leave that to the people <laughs> that tell me. Uh, <laughs> You and I have had the pleasure of meeting, so I'll let you, you know, you can weigh in on that if you want. Uh, I'd like to think I'm a nice guy. Uh, I always say this. I, I, I'm not so concerned if people like me, although obviously that's a win. I like, I, I hope that people do like me. I want people to respect me. I want people to feel that, again, that I'm being straight with them. And, and so striking that balance, as you say, uh, I think as long as you're true to yourself, you're true to a core set of values. Uh, you're true to your clients. Uh, I don't. I don't see that as being terribly difficult. In my mind, they're one and the same. Mm-hmm. So, David, let me get me. Let me get this straight. You've built a highly successful business without spending any money on marketing. In fact, before earlier on in the conversation, you said that you don't believe in marketing. I'm sure that everyone listening to this, uh, either they're starting a business or they're growing a successful business, they're going to ask, well, "How do you?" get clients. I mean, what do you mean no marketing? Well, what do you do? Well, I don't know. And if I said I don't believe in marketing, then I misspoke. I don't know that I said that. I, I think what I said is I don't believe in advertising. Advertising, and, sorry. No, that's fine. I mean, I absolutely believe in marketing. Marketing is a, you should know, is a core component of my upbringing, my education, and my day-to-day activities. I am, I think I'm a good marketer. I think it's one of my key skill sets. I am not a huge proponent of advertising in 15 years at the helm of this business and our sales were up 60% last year. So you're talking about pretty good growth year over year. 15 years at the helm, I think we've spent about $2,000 on advertising. You're kidding me. No, we really don't believe in it. I mean, I want our reputation to be built by word of mouth. I want you to tell your friends, hey, David Gancher and his organization, the Shepherd Search Group, the Moraine Group, the Money Tech Search Group, whichever of our brands you're referring to, I want you to say they changed my life. 
They helped me achieve my dreams. They moved me to a city I never thought I would get to. They brought me back to my family. They gave me a great opportunity. They connected me with some very bright, intelligent, and powerful people. And because of them, you know, I am where I need to be and where I rightfully deserve to be. And that's how you build a company. I'm not suggesting, of course, that companies like Coca-Cola shouldn't advertise, but I'm not Coca-Cola. I'm in the service business. And when you're in the service business, the way to build that is word of mouth. You do a great job for people time and time and time again. You will build that organization. How do you motivate people to refer business to you? People are busy. People are doing their own things. We bribe them. Okay. <laughs> with, with what? We pay them money. No. <laughs> no. You know, I, I think I think it almost comes naturally. I think it, it almost becomes like a, a second nature. We, when we talk to people uh, at the end of the experience, we'll always say to people, hey, hey, how have we done? If you remember Mayor Ed Koch in New York City, I love to tell the story. Ed Koch, unlike some of our more recent mayors, loved to ride the subway. He didn't have a chauffeur-driven limousine like David Dinkins did or, or uh, <laughs> you know any of these other guys. <clears throat> Ed rode the subway every day. He would stand. And I remember this. I was living in Boston at the time. He would stand in the middle of the, uh, of, the, of the train, and he would yell out to everybody, ladies, gentlemen, may I have your attention? How am I doing? And then literally on the subway car into work, people would give him feedback. I don't know of another politician that asked that question. So we went to the Ed Koch School of Theory. After every single business experience, we call up our clients and we say, hey, Tom, how did it go with Harry at my firm? That went okay. I, I think, you know, things went all right. We didn't have many concerns, but there's one issue here. We go through the whole experience with them. What did they like? What didn't they like? What worked? What didn't work? As you can imagine, because I don't think we'd have our growth rate if we weren't successful, nine times out of 10, even 95 times out of 100, that feedback is glowing. So when we get that, typically, the next question is, or the next comment is, hey, David, if I can ever do anything for you, please let me know. And I never let that moment pass. At that point in time, I say, well, actually, there is something you can do, Tom. I would be most grateful if you have one friend, and I never ask for more than one, if you've got one friend that you could refer us to who does what you do. If you could why, not, why not three? Why not three? Why not go for Because no one's going to call three. In my, from my experience, people are not going to take the time. As you said, they're busy. We right. all lead very busy lives. And I think asking one, it'll get done. So we say, hey, if you could talk to one friend and put a bird in their ear and simply say, this organization, Shepherd Search Group, Moraine Group, did a great job for me. You really ought to talk to them. They can help you solve your human resource problems, issues, conflicts, what have you. That's what we ask them to do. And they do it. And they do it. And we've built it. And we've been very successful in that regard. So ultimately, what is the difference between advertising and marketing? Well, advertising is just one form of marketing. Marketing can take on hundreds and hundreds of different forms, and advertising right. is but one form of marketing. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned one form that you've used very successfully called word of mouth referral. What other practical marketing tactics can you share that you've used that help grow your business? I think, you know, so right, word of mouth, great client experience. I think embracing technology so that you are always ahead of the curve. Uh, we're developing something right now which is going to take the executive search experience and the whole process of looking for a job. And as you can imagine with technology, 
I can't go into too much detail on it, but we're going to put it in the palm of your hand, whether you're the employer or the job seeker. So embracing technology is is a huge one. I, I think that the selection of great people, uh, as we talked about, there are so many that you can talk about that uh, are critical to the success of our business. The list is almost endless. Hmm. And you have a, also a 97% retention rate in your current company. How do you manage that? Well, we track that uh, so that when we're placing candidates, we generally will call up at the 12-month mark and inquire as to whether or not they are still employed there. I think one of the fallacies, one of the mistakes that executive search firms and employment agencies alike, because we have both a contract staffing and a permanent placement business, one of the mistakes they've made is that themselves as recruiters. So I was in a staff meeting. We bought out a competitor of ours three weeks ago yesterday. And the oh. first staff meeting that I was at with my new team, one of the individuals, a young woman who's very talented, said, retention is not our business. Recruitment is our business. And I jumped in and I said, that is where you are mistaken. Because when a client is spending the amount of money that they have to spend on our services, and they don't come cheap, when a client is spending that amount of money, they want to know that we are addressing every single issue. So it doesn't just mean recruitment, but it does mean retention. It means making sure that when Frank is moving from Colorado Springs to Tallahassee, Florida, that he's not just moving for a job, but he's moving, in fact, because he is looking to improve his life and he's got a tie to the area, whether it be family relationship, whether it be a hobby, whether it be a passion for the area. But you can't work on recruitment if you're not also working on retention. Mm. And if you were to go back to starting a business again, what would you do differently? Everything. You know, the thing about business is you always realize nobody sees your mistakes up front like you do. We've diversified today. We've got a number of different businesses. We've got an HR outsourcing business that does background checks and, uh, and, and job optimization. We've got an executive search and recruitment business. All of our businesses are tied to human resources and talent acquisition. All of our businesses. I think the mistake I made early on is that I diversified too much. And so we diversified outside of HR. I had a lot of different businesses. I think if I could do it over again, because I lost a lot of money investing in businesses that didn't make sense and weren't tied to my core competency. What I know, you know, look, I know people. I know people. I can predict behavior. I can find good talent. So in my mind, the thing is, if I could do it over again, I probably would stick to our knitting. I would just stick to HR businesses. That's where we are today, but it's not necessarily where we always were. Mm. And how do you go from being an average player in the market to the top in your industry? Well, I can't tell you that, Daniel. I'd, I'd, you know, as we said, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> it's, look, it, it's, it has been, it's taken a long time. And when we first, uh, when we first opened this business, nobody would take our call. Nobody would talk to us. And today, uh, they're calling us. Our phones are ringing. I mean, you probably just heard my phone ring. It's 7.20 in the morning here, and the phones are already ringing. Wow. That's, where, that's where the company has gotten to, and that's what we want. So from my standpoint, I think to be the best, you've got to, number one, you've got to be willing to put in the effort. You know, I've listened to a couple of your shows, and I'm not here to, to critique any of your other guests, all of whom have been wonderful. But I think there is another fallacy in the business world, and particularly as the millennials are getting older. And that is 
hey, I don't have to work that hard. Opportunities are going to come to me. I mean, you were just reading that book. I saw you on with the, the four hour work, right. four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Exactly. Right. And I haven't read the book. So here I'm going to, you know, speak out my, you know, as we say, right, I, I won't I won't finish the sentence. But that's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. And I think that people have got to understand if you're going to be number one, if you're going to own your market, you have got to live, sleep and breathe that business. You can't work from home. There was this big movement for years. You know, Yahoo and Google were moving all of their employees into into their homes. Now, now they're bringing them all back into the corporation. Why? Because it didn't work. So if you want to get a team to collaborate, you've got to bring them under a roof. You've got to work hard. And I remember years ago when I was working for that $100 million company, they spun off a dot-com. And I remember my boss, who was the president and CEO of the company, coming into my office one day and saying to me, hey, you know, those guys in the dot-com division, they're smarter than you. They're smarter than you because they can accomplish what your team, and remember, I was overseeing about 60 people at that point, they can accomplish what your team accomplishes in 16 hours. They can do it in four hours. Well, Here's the interesting thing about that comment. And by the way, he's a great friend of mine. But here's the interesting thing about that comment. That little dot-com business is out of business today. And the other business that was taking 16 hours a day to do the same thing is now a much larger business. So I, I think we need to really be clear that hard work is not a bad thing. Working from an office is not a bad thing. How do you become number one? You apply 110%. You're going to have to give. You're going to have to take from your personal life. You're going to have to take from other passions of yours. And there are going to be times in your life when you are going to have to put your business first. And I am certainly one that believes in putting God first, putting family first, putting nation first, but there are going to be times when the business has to come first. And if you're not prepared to do that, I would argue that it's going to be very, very difficult to get to a point where you can have uh, market domination. Hmm. Who are some of the people that inspire you in business? And would you recommend any good books for our listeners? Oh, well, I, I like For the Love of Benji. I'm a big dog nut, so I used to, uh, I like Lassie and For the Love of Benji and those Harlequin glasses. I said business books, David. Oh, business, not... right. <laughs> I, I yeah. say, Ruth Westheimer had a really good book I read, too. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think that uh, the people that I admire in the, in the business world, they are not the Fortune 500 CEOs, uh, although there are many great ones, Jack Welch, and obviously there are so many that you can name. The people that I admire are, again, the middle-class heroes. I admire the guy or the gal that came from a middle-class home. Maybe his mom was a secretary. Maybe he had a dad. Maybe he didn't. But he built up a small business maybe 3 million, maybe 5 million, maybe 10 million, maybe 20 million dollars. But he started from nothing and he did it with just the help of the Lord above and a great team around him and his own perspiration. Those are the individuals that I admire. And I can give you the names, but you you wouldn't know them. But I think that those are the heroes. It's difficult for me to look at a corporate CEO and say, hey, he's my hero. I mean, there are people who have influenced me, as I say, like Ed Koch, right? Certainly uh, Jack Welch, I mentioned, absolutely. You know, love to read his books and his thought process. But really, it's watching those individuals. Those are the ones I've modeled myself after, the bosses that I've had that really inspired me and really motivated me. And, and they're the ones that, uh, that I've learned the most from. Mm. 
Mm, wonderful. Just before we wrap up here, David, can you share with our listeners one practical piece of advice that they can apply today to rapidly grow their business? Mm. I think the the uh, the best no the answer is no. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> no, I can, I can I cannot give one. But I think mm. that the the one of the most important things is always walk in the customer's shoes. Always go through the experience as if you are the customer. So if you own a retail shop, you've heard the experience of somebody disguising themselves and walking in and seeing what that's like. Uh, if you own a hotel, Conrad Hilton would talk about how he would go into Hilton hotels and see how he would be treated. If you own a business like mine, call in and pretend to be looking for a job. See how you're treated. See what the response time is. The, these are uh, the types of things that one ought to be doing. So the best advice I can give is never get away from the shoes of the customer. If you do that, you're finished. But so long as you stay close to the customer and you try to live and feel their experience, you will always be successful. David, you're a true inspiration. Thanks so much for letting me pick your brain. And thank you to all my fellow listeners for tuning in. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.